make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. The point is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. That he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, welcome to Making the Hedge. My name is Josh Gibbs. I'll be your host tonight. And uh, I've got my friend Ed online with us, so he's going to be uh, talking a little bit about Bible. And uh, so the whole point of this show, guys, for those of you who are tuning in now live and for those of you who will tune in and view this later, uh, the whole point of this show is simply to provide uh, kind of an avenue for guys like you and me uh, to dialogue over Bible subjects that we may not typically have the opportunity to do uh, through social media, uh, which is primarily um, where I have a lot of my conversations online with uh, the theological things that I like to talk about and that you like to talk about. Uh, so this is kind of a show just for the average guy um, to really talk Bible. And so actually, Ed, you and I met on Twitter and as the first, if you want to call it, meeting in person. So welcome to the show, Ed. I'm really excited to have you on tonight. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been fun to interact with you on Twitter. It's nice to find uh, relatively like mine. So it's been yeah. good. Thanks for, for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, tonight we're actually going to be talking a little bit about uh, just kind of the doctrines that we would call inspiration and preservation regarding the Word of God and uh, specifically related to English translations. Um, so if, we are if we're talking about that subject, I think it's really important to uh, really understand where uh, different Bible versions come from and specifically uh, which versions we are referencing. Um, but before we get into that, Ed, I would like to have the chance to kind of introduce you to our viewers so that they can get to know you a little bit and hear a little bit about your story. And I think it's really interesting, just the little bit that I know. So uh, if you would, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you kind of got into the subject on Bible versions and inspiration, just where are you at with the Lord and how, how you kind of ended up where you're at today. Yeah, well, you know, um, when I, I was a little kid, my parents got divorced. They went to a pretty crazy charismatic church and... I was in an abusive situation there and pretty much left, sort of fled Christianity. I was uh, basically an alcoholic by 17 and just had rejected all things God. And it got to a point where um, I had to, my dad took me out of school and sent me up to live with my mom in a different town. And I hadn't even considered God for five years at all. Yeah. And I remember I picked up a Bible. I remember just saying to myself, or really just saying, God, if you're there, 
make this more than just stories about fishermen. Yeah. And so I remember reading Psalm 1, and I mean, as I read it, it really breathed life in my soul. You know what I mean? It really felt like, oh my gosh, this is real. This is God. If I meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, this is truth. And so from there, I always had a real interest in the scripture and really spent a lot of time really on my own reading it and memorizing it. And it just, I knew it was truth, you know? Yeah. And so ultimately, um, that, you know, I, I think you know that I do street evangelism now. Is about seven years ago. I mean, I've been, I've been a Christian for 30, 32 years. But basically my life was pretty much a wreck. I was very carnal seven years ago. I don't want to get into all the details, but let's just say I was a bad husband. Um, I, was allowed, I was drinking some and allowing that to affect my decision-making. And no cheating, no drugs, but just really. And I had a lot of wounds from childhood, from, I think from the abuse that I never dealt with. And so really I just got to the point where I had to decide, do I want Jesus Christ and his word, or do I want the world? Yeah. And uh, through a pretty intense situation, I chose Jesus Christ, and I chose to give up my pursuit of money as an attorney. I feel like even though I love the Lord, I feel like in my heart I really love money, and I really look to money to be my savior down the road when I was ready to retire. So it was kind of like a thing where, you know, but I think because the Holy Spirit was in me, those sins grieved me, and I think the way I was living and thinking. So seven years ago, I just said, I'm done. I'm done with the world. Yep. You know, I'll go to work, but the Lord leads me out of this, and if he fixes the situation I'm in, you know, even if he doesn't fix it, yeah. I'm, I'm with him. I remember reading Job 1, where you know Job loses everything, and I was no Job, believe me. I was not Job, <laughs> but just his mentality where he says, you know, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord is given, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be his name. And just realizing you got to bless the Lord whether he gives or takes away if you really believe that he's God. So when I did that, it was really the ultimate, I think, surrender. And through that process, um, he kind of led me to, through my wife, she was reading through all these different Bible translations. And she was like, why are they different? Why are there so many translations? Mm -hmm. So she, since I was a lawyer, she kind of put me to work. And I love (laughs) my NIV 84. And there's like, it was going to be real hard getting that thing out of my hands. I had tons memorized and, you know, I, I loved it. But also I feel like it, you know, looking back, I feel like it fed my carnality. You know? What what version was that that you're talking about? NIV 84. Oh, okay, I see. It was like the first, I think it was like, there might have been one before that, but it was kind of the main one in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah. You know, people look back at it now and they say that was the conservative version, you know, but it, right. it wasn't in, in yeah. reality. So, you know, and I have all my really best friends from college are all hooked up with Bethel and IHOP and all the really okay. outrageous, charismatic... Hey, we've got IHOP in Kansas City. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're there. <laughs> well, i got a lot of friends who love that place. Yeah. And, you know, you watch some of the videos and there are people shaking on stage and oh, doing yeah. all kinds of crazy stuff. So that kind of led me to really... I, just, I decided that I was going to know the Bible, like, for real. So I basically slowed down my work schedule and spent one whole year reading and writing my little blog that I know you saw and have read some of the articles, um, I feel like I wanted to find out what does the Bible actually say with no man teaching me, just Lord teach me. Yeah. You know, not that I got it all right, but just that, so I, I mean, I really worked hard. Yeah. Um, and through that time, you know, I wrote some articles about false prophets and teachers, which I sent to my friends. And they didn't appreciate it very much. Yeah. As you can imagine, they weren't too psyched about that. Um, <laughs> so and, you're a cessationist, I take it? 
Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a, a locked and loaded position on that, but I yeah. tend to believe that now that the perfect has appeared, the scripture, yeah. the imperfect has disappeared, where tongues will cease. So I tend to, I mean, I never want to say definitively because I don't think it's definitive in scripture, yeah. but I would err on the side. I haven't seen it done right. If, right. You know, I guess that's the best way of saying okay. it. Okay. But you don't want to limit God, but I've never seen it done right. Yep. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah. So yeah I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt your thought there. So. Yeah, no, no, no worries <laughs> at all. So, um, it was so it was really weird. After literally exactly one year of studying the Bible, I felt the Lord put it on my heart. Go to the streets, and you know what to preach. Preach sin and yeah. repentance and the blood of Christ. People need to hear that. They don't need to hear anything else. So I mean, I didn't. I'd never done that before, you know. Okay. And I had no idea how it would go. But literally the next day, I got in my car, I drove to Walmart, and I uh, just started talking to people. Then I figured out you buy tracks and you give out tracks as you tell them the gospel. Okay. So from that time forward, and really it's just, you know, I feel like the Lord has given me a great confidence to go up to anybody, rich or poor, black or white, pagan, Satanist, transgender, druid, whatever, you know, Christian, Laodicean Christian, and uh, just tell them Jesus Christ loves you and he shed his blood to pay for your sins. And I do it in Spanish and English and offer them a tract and a free Bible if they want a free Bible. And and I just go out, I do it about, I used to do it like more, about six hours a day, but I'm getting old, and so now I do it four hours a day. So that's kind of what I do and how I spend my time, and I, you know, and I enjoy it, and it's uh, definitely a gift. And that, and you know, the King James Bible is the Bible that I give out. So that's a little, little bit of background. That's So you left a career as a lawyer to go be a street preacher, pretty much. Right, and, and I think really the breaking of my life, I, I knew that I needed to do something different, but I wasn't sure what it was. Yeah. So I, I left, I, I call it, I left the pursuit of cash. Okay. Which was, you know, I, have a law, my law, I had a law practice of my own from since uh, 1999. Okay. You know, I knew that the Lord was calling me to something different and that I had to rely on Him to provide and to just uh, live more humbly yeah. and modestly and just to trust Him. So what's it like out on the street preaching with uh, just the different people that you just named a little bit? I mean, whether it's uh, whatever whatever belief that somebody might have, what's that like out on the street? You know, it's interesting. Um, I run into a lot of Catholics, and so okay. I have a really great Catholic track that has a picture of Mary on the front of it with her arms wide open. Yeah. Uh, but So they'll take it, but it opens it up and just explains the true gospel, that Mary didn't save you, Mary didn't do anything for you. Jesus Christ did it all, and then even Mary said she needed a savior. You know, yeah. I would say probably the most difficult people. I enjoy talking to Muslims. You know, my, my sort of line with them is, what testimony of Jesus are you going to trust? You're going to trust the eyewitnesses who went to their deaths for Jesus after they said he rose from the dead, yeah. or Muhammad in a cave 600 years later, who was you know where a spirit came and told them about Jesus. Yeah. You know, as an attorney, eyewitness accounts are the strongest. So. That's kind of my deal with them. And also about sin, just you can't pay for your own sin. You know, same thing with Catholics. Purgatory, yeah. you know, you can't do it in purgatory. Jesus either did it all or he didn't do any of it. So I would like to use that as a transition into the subject that we're going to discuss tonight with uh, basically inspiration to preservation into the English versions that we've got. But before we do, I want our viewers to uh, have the chance to see your blog site. So for those of you who are viewing right now, uh, you can access Ed's blog site. It is uh, followingjesuschrist3.com. You should be able to see it up on the screen right now. 
and uh, he's got a lot of posts up here, um, and there's a lot that he talks about with the Word of God. There's a lot that he talks about in some very specific doctrines. Um, you can see over here on the right, there's some subcategories with the date of the blog as well. Um, I would definitely recommend it. I, th I think that uh, Ed and I are both very like-minded in, in the way that we view scripture, the way that we view uh, doctrine as well. Uh, and it's something that I would recommend. So if you have a chance, go to his blog site and uh, check it out. You can see a little bit of his story down here on the right as well. And uh, um, that's good. So is there anything that you wanted to add to, to that, Ed? How did you start the blog site? You know, it was, it was that deal where I felt like I really, you know, you hear this and that from people, you know, from different preachers say this and that, and I really wanted to know for myself. So what I did was I read through the New Testament like three times, taking notes on every topic. Like I had little teeny tiny notes and all these pages spread out all over my kitchen table and just verses that related to a certain topic like grace and obedience, you know, like yeah. how do you make it to the end? You know, and then I also wrote a little bit about some of the things that I learned, you know, the hard way and the easy way. Yeah. Well, I wrote a little bit about Job 1, about what I learned about how the Lord, whether he gives or takes, blessed be your name. So I kind of wove in sort of theological articles plus kind of lessons that I learned. Like, yeah. you know, Philippians 3, 7 through 14, to me, defines the purpose of life. Yeah. So I remember when I was 19 and read that, I remember going, okay, I, I read this and I hear it. I, I mean, I want to want to be like Paul, but I don't want to be like Paul. You know, Paul's saying... Whatever is to my profit is a loss. You know, I want to know yeah. the power of Christ's death. And I remember thinking, gosh, I mean, that's that's where I want to be one day, but I'm not there yet. Yeah. But it, it moved me and really made me, kind of pulled me deeper into, you know, I guess a desiring to, to really walk with the Lord and to get to know Him and love Him and learn yeah. from Him. That's good, man. I mean, I think that that's something that so many people, whether you're a Christian or whether you're a non-Christian, is uh, really trying to find what that purpose in life is. And I think yeah. ultimately it comes down to uh, whether or not there is a creator. And if there is a creator, right. then he's got to have a purpose for his creation. And if you can if you can find that in the Bible and figure out where it's at and apply that to your own life, man, I mean, it just opens up a whole new light on who yeah. God is and what he's got planned for you and what your purpose is on this earth and how that carries over into eternity. So I think that those... Those things matter. I mean, that's something that everybody is searching for is purpose, ultimately, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. And I see that. I feel like on the streets, I know there's so many people who are atheists and who are evolutionists. And I love to talk to them about the glory of creation. You know, and Psalm 19 nails it. Romans yeah. 1 nails it. I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. It's it's undeniable. You know, yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see how angry atheists are and how they do not want to believe that there's a creator God. Yeah. And because they love their sin. And people tell me, I don't have sin. Mm -hmm. I say greed, pride, lust, anger, jealousy, unforgiveness. You know, I say we all have sin. We don't, might not want to call it that, but it is what it is. Yeah, you and know? I mean, even in, in speaking to a Muslim, I, Muslims don't believe that they've sinned against God. Because in Surah chapter 4, verse 122, it says, no man hath sinned against God at any time. And then you, you compare that to what, to what David says, and he sins against thee and thee only have I sinned. Oh, Lord. Right. And so I think that that's something. Um, but specifically when it comes to uh, no matter who it is that you're talking to, whether it's an atheist, a Muslim, a Catholic, it ultimately comes down to what your authority is on the things yeah. that you're preaching and teaching, whether it's the doctrine yeah. that you're teaching. And that is what leads to the conversation that we're going to have tonight is 
the authority that we stand on is something that God has promised that he would give us, that he would preserve his words from this generation forever. And uh, I think that that's something, if you really examine it, you can trace it throughout history and say, you know what, God did what he said he would do, which would lead us to the first uh, the first step in defining what our authority is, and I think that would be inspiration itself. Now, right. I'm sure you, as a lawyer, you've got a pretty analytical mind, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> well, how did you start? You said your wife kind of uh, got you interested and, and kind of brought you onto that topic, and you couldn't let it go of which right. one of these versions is right, and why do we have so many versions? So I guess my first question would be, um, in examining all of the different versions, did you actually ever have the question that there's got to be one of these that's right, There's there could be more than one that's correct? How did you kind of go through that process to decide what yeah. is the Word of God and the versions and we have? First, I admit, I'm, I'm not an expert. All I can say is I've done a lot of research, and I feel like I've, you know, I have an article, a couple, actually three articles in my blog about it. But what I saw very clearly from the beginning is that there really are only two Bibles. In, in fact, there are only two Bibles. Yeah. One comes from Antioch, Syria, and the, and, the, and the Greek that flows therefrom, and one comes from Alexandria, Egypt. Yeah. And the King James, interestingly enough for Calvinists, is the Geneva Bible uses the Texas Receptus. It's also known yeah. as the majority text, the Byzantine text, the traditional text, the Texas Receptus. Those are all essentially the same thing, with the same manuscript family. And then on the other side, from Alexandria, Egypt, you have the Alexandrian text, which comes from the Gnostic schools, and then we're basically hidden in Rome until, I mean, you know, it's funny because people say, well, where was your KJV before 1611? <laughs> I said, well, where was your new version before 1881? That's a great question. Rome. Yeah. It was in Rome, and it was in some caves in Egypt. Yeah. Mine was in Ethiopia. It was yeah. in Serbia. It was in Armenia. Yeah. It was in Alps. It was in Italy. Yeah. It was in Germania, and it was in France. I know that those things for a fact. Yeah. And that's starting out in, you know, 46 AD when the, or 49 AD, I'm sorry, when the first, you know, Paul wrote his first book, First Thessalonians. Man, that's good. So that's in, in, in just that level right there, I think is, is, is a level of examination of which Bible version um, is correct. It, it has to go back to the text that it came from, right? And, exactly. and so when we, say, when we say King James, some people associate King James with king james only and there's such a stigma to that so when you would you say that you're a king james only guy i would say the king because the king james is the only true texas receptus english bible the only bible that i trust in english is the king james yeah. and i would say because of the contents it's it's like it's 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 funny because i i really truly hated the king james when i started researching this i thought it was ridiculous <laughs> i thought I mean, it doesn't make any sense. The language is old. You know, yeah. Baptist, you know, old Baptist guys with three-piece polyester suits and Greg Brady yeah. stuff, zip-up boots, read from the King James. That's right. So I had no interest in reading from the King James. But as I studied it and got deeper and deeper and saw what had been done to the Greek and who did it, you know, we get into Westcott Board and all that at your convenience. But I realized this is not a close call. I mean, yeah. in the manuscript numbers, it's 45 to 5,746 yeah. plus 10,000 old Latin Bibles circa 167 AD. Yeah. So, I mean, the evidence, is, it's so disproportionate that I, it, I think it's hard to, unless you really believe that Sinaiticus, which was found you know, in St. Catherine's Monastery in 1843 by a Catholic sympathizing guy named Tischendorf, yeah. it didn't have the first 46 chapters of Genesis. 
didn't have the pastoral epistles. Yeah. Didn't have Revelation, but it did have the Gnostic epistle of Barnabas, and it did have the Satanic Shepherd of Hermes. Yeah. So if you and that's that that book is what formed <laughs> textual criticism. Yeah. And that's considered the you know the Rosetta Stone of, of Bibles, and it also has twenty three thousand edit marks, ten different editors. When you really want one. On, right. a, on a specific manuscript text, you don't want ten guys marking it up and yeah. making twenty-three thousand marks. But it's just like it's. I remember going, I just can't believe I didn't know this. Yeah. How did I? How did I get deceived into thinking that the new versions were so great when the evidence is so strong against them? Yeah. So I was actually pretty upset about it. Only like, what? This is crazy. You know. Yeah. I kind of had the same reaction. It was like, gosh, why has nobody ever told me this before? Because I was under the mindset, and this is kind of where my story starts when it comes to the examination of the different Bible versions. it <clears throat> For me, it started uh, back in 2009, and uh, I, 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 the conversation came up. Um, I was throwing a party. I had, a, I had some people over, and the conversation throughout, probably around midnight came up that uh, we were talking about the Bible. I was under the impression and just the general presumption, I guess, that the Bible was the Word of God in, in, in general. There, it, it, the different versions all have different things to say about what the Word of God is, but I right. did not believe that there was a final authority when it comes to a specific version in general or specifically a, 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 an English version that you could say, you know what, this is traceable throughout history, and therefore um, I didn't believe that uh, they were they were cohesive in the message that was. I, I just said, you know what? They're not. They all say conflicting and different things. I mean, you can't have a final authority when it comes to that. So when that when that came up, um, the uh, there was a girl that said, you know what? I'm going to call my pastor. So we called the pastor at midnight. He answered and was at answering some of the questions that we had. I said, I've got to look into this a little more. So mm-hmm. that's where it kind of started for me. Right. And uh, getting just kind of getting into that, but I think it's interesting that you said that uh, basically you've got two Bibles. One one originates from Alexandria, the other is from Syria. Uh, Syria would be moder- would be Antioch uh, in in the New Testament times where they were first right. called Christians, and uh, Alexandria is obviously in Egypt. So I think it's interesting if you really trace uh, the origin of where the critical text comes from the earliest that you can see that those versions come would be a fifth century fourth century um that really goes back to origin back in alexandria yeah. do you see that as well yeah yeah really yeah it was uh i guess um the first person to really get on it was origin in the 200s and then it went to eusebius who published the yeah. you know 50 bibles for constantine and the 300s and then you had Jerome put yeah. together his Latin Catholic. And it's funny because the, the, the original Latin Vulgate was a Texas Receptus Bible. Yeah. There's 10,000 in existence today. But Rome stole that name to get people to believe that it was a real common Bible that they could read. And you know, one of the interesting, interesting things about Erasmus, I don't know if we'll get to him, but one of the first things he did was, you know, he was a Catholic, but he really despised a lot of you know the practices of, of Rome and especially how they handled the Bible. He showed how they took their Bible and instead of putting repentance in there, they put penance. Yeah. They added things like purgatory. And you know, one of the things that I noticed during the whole um, my whole review of the issue is how much Catholic doctrine was subtly sewn into the new versions. You know, like confessing your sins to your brothers. You're not saved. You're being saved. You know, um, yeah. believers' baptism versus 
you know, just taking out the whole deal where you have to, if you believe with all your heart in Acts 37, that kind of thing. And that, you know, there's all kinds of stuff, you yeah. know, that are, that are taken out and subtly woven back in. So you just, Rome's hand was all over it. And Westcott Court, as you know, they were very pro-Catholic. Yeah. Even if they were Anglican. See, and I think that that's something uh, extremely important to bring up. When you're talking about these new Bible versions, uh, it, we can call them new Bible versions, but when they when when they originated back in 1881 under Westcott and Hort, when they came up with the critical text under this this new style of textual criticism that really revolutionized the scholarly realm of examining the scriptures, um, I wouldn't say a biblical realm. I would say a scholarly realm that uh, is more of an academy style of examining the scriptures whether it was whether it was someone who is a believer and examining it from that perspective or someone who is not a believer and examining the scriptures and telling us what bibles we've got when it comes to these verses and and you hear guys like you and me who will bring it up you know what uh if if somebody's never heard it before you can say well will you turn to acts 837 for me and and in the bible that you've gotten they turn there and for the first time they say well it's not there and and yeah. they ask the question, well, why isn't it there? And right. and so we're we we have an answer for them, uh, for right. why it wouldn't be there. But um, from from the other side of it, uh, guys who argue for the critical text would say, well, you didn't have the numbering system until you know that whenever that originated. And right. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but they would say, well, you didn't have the numbering system. So what we're doing is we're examining all the early evidence that we can to see what the, the, the earliest and best text had to say on the subject. And right. therefore, it's not in there, so we don't put it in the text. And to right. me, I think that, that, that that's a, obviously a, a very gross thing to do in handling the Word of God because of the doctrine of preservation. And if we had it throughout history, that means that it was in there. So when we look from our side of what is the correct version to examine and say, you know what, this is the Word of God, we look at a number of different witnesses. And I think Dean Bergen, uh, John Bergen, he, he lays out a number of different um, sources, what he would call witnesses, that you could attest to to say, you know what, this is, this is what they had, this is what they were using. We look at the manuscripts, we look at... Uh, the early church fathers. We look at lectionaries. Now we're looking at the papyrus. We're looking right. at uh, uh, what else are we looking at? We're um, we're looking at different Bible versions. So it's not right. just it's right. not just the Greek text alone. It's all of these different witnesses together that that right. you can say this was there. These guys were preaching this verse that was in yeah. whatever version they First were John using. Five, it. Seven is a so, great example of that. What was that? First John five seven absolutely you know, about the Trinity. Yep. The, it's heavily disputed. Um, Cyprian quoted that in the second century, and they say, "Oh, it didn't exist until the thirteen hundreds." But there's all kinds of attestation to it from the people who were close to the actual apostles. Yeah. And you know, it's funny when you look at the textual, the textual principles used by Westcott and Hort. It's basically just defer to Sinaiticus. When in doubt, Sinaiticus, the yeah. one found in a trash pit in Saint Catherine's Monastery with. 2,000 fewer Greek words. We'll just defer to that. Don't look at the, you know, the, like it's interesting that the very end of Mark, yeah. um, there's 620 manuscripts that exist on that. 618 contain the last nine verses. That's right. Yeah, it's not in the new versions, even though 618 out of 620 yeah. have it in there. It's the same with um, 1 Timothy 3.16. It says yeah. God was manifest in the flesh. Yeah. 
I believe that's in 252 of the 255 yep. uh, existing manuscripts of First Timothy. Yet it's in no new versions. So, I mean, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I didn't. I, oh, no, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Sorry. So, so I guess I guess when when we're when we're actually saying, you know what, our Bible has these in here. What we're really saying is, this is canon. This is what has been decided and preserved throughout history. So the, right. the argument ultimately isn't what is the oldest and best text that we can reconstruct right. what the probably what the original was or get as close to the original through these new versions. Right. But rather, rather the, the question is, is this actually canon? When you, when you look at 1 John 5, 7, the Yohanin comma, and which is the greatest testimony in the entire Bible, in my opinion, to the witness of the Trinity itself, uh, from the heavenly witness at least, the earthly witness is listed right after that. But, right. but then you look at Mark 16, and those verses are gone. And you look right. at Acts 8.37, and that verse is gone. And, 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 and I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is the argument on the critical side is that the general principles are preserved, the general message is preserved, but, but from our side, we would say that's not true, that there are, in fact, doctrines that are changed. What, what would you Absolutely. say about that? I would say, you know, it's, it's funny because they try to say that, you know, that, well, the oldest manuscripts point to the critical Greek text, but when you look at the, the oldest existing Bible is the Syrian Peshitta, circa 145 A.D., Texas Receptus. You've got 10,000 old Latin Bibles that date from 167 A.D. to 400, Texas Receptus. Then yeah. they're saying that Sinaiticus is the oldest, and they date it to the 200s, maybe the 300s, and that's really just one. There's also, um, obviously, Vaticanus and Alexandrinus. Those yeah. are really the, the three right. that they defer to. And even they, like the interesting thing about Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, the two used by the textual, textual critics today, they disagree like, 2,300 times in the Gospels alone. And so it's funny because, really, if, if you really examine it, and I was the guy who didn't want to find what I found. Yeah. I mean, both on the historical side and then on the canon side, Texas Receptus wins. And I didn't want to find that because I loved my NIV 84, but it was undeniable. It's, yeah. it's still silly, scholarly psychobabble on the level of evolution. It's a pseudoscience. And interestingly, one of the things in um, one of the verses changed was in was it First Timothy 6.22. It says, basically, beware of science falsely so-called. Right. All science, evolution... You know, textual, that's not in the new versions. They take it out. They want you yeah. to believe whatever science tells you. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's so interesting. And something that, in my opinion, I think that Christians in general should be concerned with. Uh, obviously, for the, the implications that doctrine is, in fact, affected. So, for instance, um, this Saturday... I'm going to have a debate with a guy who actually stands for the critical text, and we're going to look at what we would call textual variants. So right. he's picked uh, he's picked three textual variants that he wants to look at, and right. uh, I've picked the the three major what we would call a textual variant. And and I think it's interesting uh, the three that I'm actually going to be talking about. You uh, you brought up uh, okay. the Yohanin huh. comma, and then you've got the woman caught in adultery. And uh, Mark 16, the verses that that were taken out of Mark 16, and and I think that um, even what's what's even more interesting beyond that is 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 that uh, and I just actually I tweeted this out earlier uh, to a guy who actually wrote his he, he he translated or if you want to call it a translation he made his own Greek text 
It's called the Strive text. And uh, um, so, um, where was I going with that? Um, so, I think that... Um, Is the doctrine changed? Yeah, There's so a lot of doctrine change. I, I think that I, I, I think that there is there are absolutely some things that we need to look at. Oh, that's what I was going to say. When you're looking at what we would call a textual variant, we have to look at the witnesses that uh, that would attest to whether or not it was or whatever whether or not it wasn't in addition to what was part of the original. So when we look at even First John five seven, and you look at those earlier witnesses, the 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 critical scholars are even recognizing that the Byzantine witnesses of what you're talking about with the Latin versions, they're, they're starting to recognize that these witnesses attest to the traditional text that has preserved these, these, uh, these verses and, and a more complete text of the Word of God. And I think that that is actually pretty interesting to see. Yeah. And it's funny, too, when I think about, like, you know, Rob Bell and his little book on hell. Yeah. I mean... Mark 9, Love wins. 48, where Jesus says, The worm dieth not, and the fire is never quenched. Yeah. Um, that's deleted out two of the three times in some versions, and all three in the other. Yeah. And there you have Jesus Christ with his own mouth talking about the eternality and the, the infernal nature of hell. So when that's taken out, it just you just don't you think, well, Jesus didn't really talk about hell much. I mean, that's the great key verse, the key passage when Jesus says it three times in a row for emphasis. Yeah. And repentance is when Jesus says um, he didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. And right. the King James says sinners to repentance. He didn't call you to just sinners just to chill out with them and have crap beer. That's right. And debate theology. He wants you to repent. And that's a critical thing. And the blood of Christ is deleted out a couple times. In John 7, 8 through 10, Jesus is made a liar. And it's just funny how subtle that is. I feel like when I was a kid, when I was like when I was actually in my teens and I read that, I feel like subconsciously in my NIV, I noticed that Jesus tells his brothers, I'm not going up to the feast, and then does. And going, that's kind of weird. And yeah. then you get into King James, and Jesus says, I'm not going up to the feast yet. Right. So there's a huge difference between him lying to his brothers and him not. And in Galatians 5, Paul says he wants to castrate his enemies in the new versions. In the King James, it says he want, he wishes that his enemies were cut off. Right. Um, so, I mean, Paul, I mean, for Paul, to, I remember thinking, that is, I'm shocked that Paul would say something like that. Well, fortunately, he didn't say it. You know, and I mean, and there's a bunch of critical passages on passages on on riches, on wealth, deleted, either yeah. deleted or taken out entirely. That you know, I mean, what is it? First Timothy six five. It says, "Withdraw from those who equate godliness with financial gain," and that's Joel Osteen and all the prosperity preachers of today. But that's not in in our Bibles. And Mark ten twenty four says essentially the same thing, and that's gone too. So, in in that regard, what would you say to someone who we we obviously bring up the fact that the King James Bible does not have a copyright on it, and these new versions they do have copyrights on them. Now, in that context of what you're you're saying that the Word of God should not be used for profit, uh, that it's freely get to freely received, so freely give. Um, what would you say in that context behind the motive for these versions? Do you think that the profit could be something that is a motivation behind a copyright? I mean, I, th I think it's pretty obvious, and especially with the ESV. You know, I mean, I feel like the Calvinists, they wanted their own version, and then, you know, John Piper's behind it, and you know Calvinists are going to buy it. Yeah. And th the sad thing about that is when you think about how the Holy Spirit inspired the original Word of God, and here they, to get a copyright, have to change it 20%. It has to be 20% different. That's right. Other 
which means it's not the Holy Spirit that's making the changes, but it's a thesaurus. Yeah. So they got to break out the thesaurus. That's right. The changes to get them the cash. Yeah. So I mean, to me, I mean, ideally, if you are going to make another Bible version, you know, um, at least to try to look honorable, you give every single cent, other that didn't cover publication. I mean, beyond publication costs. Yeah. You know, you give it to the poor and just spreading the gospel. Yeah. You know, I mean, money. I mean, that's the thing that I feel like I see more than anything on the streets is how money has corrupted the message. And everybody thinks, I want their money. I want them to come to my church. You know, they believe they've they got to go give their tithe. And the pastor wants their tithe no matter what. He doesn't yeah. care about them and just wants their money. And you see it with the Bible translations as well. It's, money has, has really polluted Christianity on all levels. And it's very, very, yeah. very sad because the blood of Christ is free. Absolutely. You know, on that cross, cold and naked, far sins and charge. So I would say in in that reference to the blood of Christ and doctrines that are changed, yeah. in Colossians 1.14 it says that we have redemption through yeah. his blood. Right. And I, I think that it's very interesting to see that, uh, that every new version that I can think of off the top of my head has removed through right. his blood. And, and now some people, and this is... This is something that actually has been brought up on social media recently uh, with John MacArthur who says that the blood of Christ is no, is, is no more magical than any other bodily fluid that could have left his body in a graphic sense of any other bodily fluid. Now, do you think that the blood of Christ should be equated with any other bodily and graphic fluid that could leave his body now how important is the blood of Christ to salvation you know what, what I think is so interesting is it, it show, it's really malpractice because if you go back and you look at the Passover what saved the, those guys in, in Egypt was in Goshen was the blood of the innocent lamb that they posted on the that they put on the doorpost the blood is what saved them then and it's what saves us now and that's why you know also people on the streets are like you know the blood it's so gross it's like our sin is gross yeah. so we needed something that you know gross to, to cover it and so without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That's right. Yeah. And Jesus had to shed his blood to be that the, the permanent Passover lamb. I mean, it's one of those things where God does things his way, and his way requires blood. And yeah. therefore, we submit to God's way. And when God tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, we believe it. And when yeah. Jesus Christ is willing to shed his blood, I mean, when I think about spikes in his feet and him hanging on that cross and him being whipped and people laughing at him, mocking him, cold and naked... I mean, it's no small thing, his blood dripping down, and that blood was released to wash away our sin. Amen. So to act like it's nothing but a bodily substance is really, it's either ignorance or he's a wolf, like gross ignorance, or yeah. he's a wolf. Yeah. You know? And then you add in that he said that you can take the mark of the beast and still be saved. You know, you got to wonder what? You know, that's, there's, that's some, there's some problems there. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and fundamentally... I think that the blood of Christ is is absolutely 100% essential for salvation. If you if you Amen. deny the blood of Christ, that is literally denying the atonement for your soul. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 17:11, it says that the blood is the atonement for your souls. Amen. And that was I got to switch cameras here. It yeah, keeps no switching over on me. Well, so. that, you know, Romans um, 3.25, and I would suggest any Christian, any believer, should memorize Romans 3.20-28. But in Romans 3.25, it says we have faith in his blood. So, obviously, we have faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but it specifically notes 
that we have faith in his blood. And Ephesians talks about how the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. So, I mean, the, there's so many references to the blood in the New Testament. And, you know, basically Hebrews uh, chapter 7 through 10 talk about the blood and how the blood's necessary and how the all the Old Testament typology, how that relates to what Christ did and the new better covenant, which is written in the blood of Christ versus tablets of stone, you know. Amen, man. I'm, I've got to tell you. I'm enjoying this conversation. So, I mean, we're we've already been going for 40 minutes, and it seems like a breeze. But so, all right. I think that if we could go back a little bit, and really, I we didn't get a chance to do it because I, you know, I chase rabbits a lot. I get going on something and and just roll with it. But I think that if we could really define inspiration and preservation, and and just kind of talk about those two things real briefly, and get into a couple areas. Um, after that, what, how would you dis- define inspiration? Because uh, most 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 Bible versions in the preface will say that uh, we believe in the verbal, plenary, inspired, original Greek text. So that would right. be the autograph, the one that literally was right. penned down by the author. Right. And uh, we don't have those today. So right. what would you say is inspiration? And and could you say that what we have today? Whether it's in, and this gets into some subcategories, is it just the Greek text that was inspired? Obviously, the Hebrew and, and Chaldean and, and Aramaic and, and the Old Testament uh, uh, would be the different languages that were recorded. But I, I think that it's important to define what inspiration is. So, what, what would be your take on that? You know, I mean, I've really never even thought of it like that. I mean, I just when Psalm twelve seven says, you know, He preserves His word from this generation forever. Yeah. Um, that means forever means forever. So that means what we have today, that we if we do the due diligence and trace it back to the apostles, and we know that their hand was on the Greek that made our Bible, and then you look and you see the chain, you know, of the um, Byzantine text slash majority text, and how it got really to the hand of Erasmus uh, in the fifteen hundreds, and his work that he did. And then, you know, you have Beza and Stephanus and Tyndale, which goes up to King James. You, you see the Lord's hand pushing it forward and protecting it, you know. In the 300s, there was a, a brutal persecution of Christians by Diocletian. And um, it lasted for about eight years. And many of the Texas Receptus, um, I guess the Byzantine text, um, manuscripts were burned yeah. and destroyed. But some of them were hidden in the mountains. The yeah. Waldensians, the uh, Talos, hid them in the Alpian mountains. And they worked hard to rewrite them, uh, you know, once it was over, once he was gone. Yeah. So you see how the Lord did protect it, and he allowed it. And you see, so it's, it's funny, you see, one's in Alexandria and hidden in Rome. One is spread all over the world, and then is gathered together in the 1500s from all over the world. You know, I think Erasmus, some say he had access to 12 manuscripts, some say 10, it, 10, 10 languages, some say 12. So, I mean, it was all over the world where the Alexandrian one was, was really just in Egypt. I mean... And Egypt and Rome, so no one was using it, but the world yeah. was using the Byzantine, which ultimately formed the Texas Receptus in our Bible today, King James. So there's a couple of things that I would that I would piggyback off of what you just said. One with Erasmus, and then two remind me if I don't, because I can lose my train of thought. Uh, would sure. be Ezra regarding translation. So the first one with with Erasmus. Uh, there's a lot of discrepancy on how many uh, manuscripts he, he actually did have. Um, I don't think anybody really knows what he had, what he actually had. 
what he held in his hands, what he laid out on the table. I don't think anybody actually knows how many he really, truly had. But but one thing to consider that he did have access to was all the, uh, the different versions. He had different versions. He had uh, yeah. different manuscripts. He had... He had commentaries that he had access to. He even considered some of the old church fathers. And he even wrote to, I can't think of who he wrote to, but he, he wrote to someone asking to see Vaticanus. Yeah, And so he knew about it back then. You know, yeah. they, that text was around back then. He knew about it. He wrote yeah. about it. And he chose not to use it. I think that that is very telling in what he chose as a Catholic Absolutely. And by the way, I don't believe that, that he was a Catholic trying to give us a Catholic Bible. I believe that he was a Catholic trying to reform from within. And you exactly. had guys that were breaking from the church back then, whether they stayed in it or whether they completely broke from it. And that was part of the Protestant Reformation. But I think Erasmus, the only way that he could put a... He, his desire was actually to put out a, a new Latin version. But right. he didn't have a Greek text that he thought was trustworthy. So he right. wanted to produce a Greek text that was trustworthy enough to put out a new Latin Bible, and it just so happened that God used that thing to produce, to basically give us what we've got uh, right. with the traditional text from there. Yeah, but, on that, you know, Martin Luther called, I think, his second edition Greek text his, his wife. You know, the <laughs> phrase is that... Um, that's right. Erasmus laid the eggs, and Martin Luther hatched the chickens. So, yeah. I mean, Martin Luther, even though they ended up sort of battling a little bit later yeah. in life, that Martin Luther loved his second edition of his Greek text and, and held on to it tight. Yeah, Apparently. yeah, absolutely. And I think Erasmus, it, it he uh, he had a lot to say about Martin Luther's the bondage of the will, and you know that conversation that was going sure. on back then regarding, um, I mean, if you want to call it Calvinism, uh, right. just the the natural state of total depravity and what the what the reality of that was and the argument has not really changed since then. But, I, you know, without getting into Calvinism, I want to get back to um, inspiration and, and translation. Uh, I think it's so interesting when we actually consider the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and you've got a, a couple other languages that was recorded in as well. In Ezra, you've gotten from Ezra 4.8 to 7.27, um, it was recorded in Chaldean. Daniel he actually has some Chaldean recording in the book of Daniel as well. I think it's in chapter nine, um, but but even but even more than that, Moses grew up in Egypt, right? Right. And he recorded what was written in Hebrew. I don't, I don't think they were they were speaking Hebrew back in Egypt. Maybe that was the native tongue that was preserved in his language, and he kept it. I believe that that Hebrew language is the same then as it is today. Uh, but what I would say in regard to translation, even through the Old Testament, you've got Chaldean that's translated, uh, and then when you get into the New Testament, you've got obviously the Greek text that translates the Old Testament text in a Greek text. So when we talk about translations that uh, could or could not be inspired, I think that that's something that we should actually consider is, does that Greek text uh, that is supposedly inspired uh, through the original autograph that translates the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek, could we say that that translation is in fact inspired because it translates Hebrew to Greek? What, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I might, you might have lost me, but here, here's what I'm thinking. Like, if you're talking about the Septuagint versus the Ben-Hakim Masoretic for the Old Testament, it's funny because the new versions quote the Septuagint when Jesus is talking, quoting the Old Testament, 
But the King James quotes the Ben Yakim Masoretic because yes. you know the crazy thing about the Old Testament, and there's so many errors in the Septuagint and the New Version Old Testament. I mean, I could go. There's tons of them. It's ridiculous. But the, you know, the Jews always they knew they were God's people, and yeah. so they're not going to write their Old Testament in Greek. They're going to write it in Hebrew. Yeah. So the whole idea of using a Greek Old Testament and translating that into English for the Bible is crazy on many levels. And there's also a lot of dating problems with the Septuagint. Absolutely. Yeah, and and I, think that that's some, I think yeah. that's something that we need to actually consider. When we, when we talk about the Septuagint, the only existing copy that we have, uh, the only, it, would, it comes from Origen's Hexaplaw, and, and I think that that's something to consider is that there is a fragment of uh, a Greek translation of the Hebrew prior to Christ, but it's, it's, so, it's, it's basically the size of a credit card, and there's only one of them out of, out of everything that they have access to. And, and, and when, when we consider what's the oldest and best from that, that wordage, um, I, I, I think that it's something to actually take take seriously whether or not the Septuagint is what they tell us it is. Is right. it actually the Greek text that was right. Hebrew translated into Greek prior to Christ and Christ quoted it when all that we have showed up with origin? I mean, right. I, I, I'm not sure that I can actually buy into that narrative. Right. And, and when you think about who origin was, you know, origin castrated himself. He believed <laughs> that even demons and Satan would be redeemed. Yeah. Believe that all souls have existed from eternity past, you know. And he, yeah. I mean, he basically he didn't believe any sound doctrine. He started right. out sound, and then he slowly slid down the drain. So, yeah. to anything that comes from him, and that's really where the um, all the new version, New Testament, originates from origin as well. Yeah. So the whole idea that God would use that guy for our Bible versus the apostles yeah. and the people who are fleeing from the Catholics in the mountains of Italy. So they wouldn't get killed, and I mean, you know, you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you, you know, hear all these stories about what happened to the people who, the Anabaptists, and all the people who defied Rome and read the Bible for themselves. It, it was ugly. They were all pretty much yeah. murdered. You know, as, as best as Rome could do. Yeah, I agree. I think that I think that not only can you trace uh, the doctrines of what the Church believed in uh, throughout history through what Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs would call the Trail of Blood, you know, yeah. but I, I think that you can also trace uh, where, the, where the text of scriptures was at through who, what these true believers were willing to give them their lives for through sure. the Trail of Blood as well. Yeah, yeah, but, absolutely. Okay, so I guess uh, regarding preservation, we've talked about inspiration a bit. Um, if, if I were to just give a, a real brief definition of what inspiration is, the Bible says the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And Second yeah. Timothy 3.16 uh, says that the word of God is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, um, and all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, so I, I would say that um, the, the words that were spoken were inspired, and those right. words were recorded. They were written down. But when, when I think about the preservation of the Word of God, and, and I think about what Ezra came across, I think Ezra is a great picture uh, of what we're dealing with today. We, you've got a, a real question about where the Word of God is at. And uh, in, in Ezra, he actually was 
the key player in the Old Testament for bringing the scriptures back and bringing it back to the back to the worship of the Jewish people and establishing a text. Uh, so I, I think that uh, when we consider that and we consider where we're at in, in today's time period, where right. we're really having to do the same thing in deciphering what is the Word of God, where is it at, right. and the way that we have to do that is 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 ciphering through all of these different versions and all of these different Greek texts and taking a stand for what we believe is what God has actually preserved. So all of that right. said, my question to you would be, has God actually preserved his word with every jot and tittle that he promised he would? Amen. Absolutely. So, I, 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 I no believe... That. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was saying, no, no doubt about it. And, you know, you referred to Second Peter 1 briefly, but what's so interesting about that is where Peter tells us that the scriptures, going back to the Old Testament, um, are as certain as God speaking out of the cl- a cloud at That's the Transfiguration. Right. That's how sure, you know, when you have people wanting words of knowledge and all these, you know, charismatic gifts, we've got something that's as certain as God speaking out of a cloud to yeah. him on the Mount of Transfiguration. So I think that's pretty certain. So we have to yeah. make sure we know what that scripture is, and that's what you and I are doing tonight, figuring it out. So, okay, um, let, let me see here. Uh, now, here's, I, I don't know how... how um, how much in depth you would like to go uh, regarding some of these texts that would be preserved and quoted and changed. So uh, here's an example of where I'd like to go next. In the Old Testament, you've got a quote in Habakkuk 2.4, and uh, I want to see if I can bring this up. I'll bring it up on the screen so everybody can see. But I think this is something interesting that we could consider, that uh, Jesus decides to... Um, not Jesus, Paul, Paul decides that uh, the text is going to be changed here, and specifically the reference is to Habakkuk 2.4. Let me pull it up. I think that it says... Uh, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it's not upright within him, uh, but the just shall live by his faith. And you see this quoted over in uh, Romans 1.17, and in Romans 1.17, if I can see that, it says, uh, uh, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament back in Habakkuk 2.4, The just shall live by faith. Now, I guess my question to you is, would this be an accurate translation from the Old Testament to the New Testament where Paul is quoting Habakkuk 2.4, but he, he removes that one word, his faith from Habakkuk 2.4 and changes it to by faith alone. So do you think that there's a doctrinal change? I don't know if it's ever, if, if it's something that you've actually considered or not, but I figured I'd pick your brain on it. Yeah, you know, um, I have never considered that. Okay. Um, I've read Habakkuk and I've read that, and you're right, that word is missing. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting how sometimes in Romans it refers to the faith of Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. that's the faith that we have. Absolutely. So it's almost like it's implied in that scripture, you know, that we know that the faith is in and of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So it doesn't seem to me to be changing doctrine. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, in in that case, I think that, so I, obviously I believe the Holy Spirit was behind what was written in Habakkuk 2.4. 
I also believe that the Holy Spirit is behind and inspired what was written in Romans 1.16. So if, I, if I'm seeing that the Holy Spirit is behind it, and they're both inspired writings, and they're both different, right. and he's saying that he's quoting the Old Testament, and uh, it, you see in, in Romans 1.16, uh, it says, from faith to faith. So there's a different differentiation, something that's, that's absolutely comparing one faith to another faith, or the same faith to the same faith. So the question is, is their faith in the same thing as what our faith is in? And uh, I, I think that it's, it's something in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit inspired to say in Habakkuk 2.4, that they live by their faith, by his faith, that individual's faith. Right. <coughs> Sorry. And it, to, to tie into exactly what you, you said right there, that our faith is in Jesus Christ, I think right. that that is very telling doctrinally to show that from faith would represent the faith in the Old Testament that is something that was within man. They weren't putting their faith in Jesus Christ alone, but in Romans 1.16, you've got a further revelation that Paul is now under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to show us that the Old Testament faith is different than the New Testament faith, that we are placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone, which is our faith in his faith. So, uh, I'm not sure what you're getting at, but I feel like the Old Testament folks were saved by faith. Like when it absolutely. Talks about in Romans, uh, was it 4, 2 through 4, when it says, if Abraham were justified by works, he had wear of the glory, but not before God. Yeah. What say it the scriptures? Um, Abraham believed God, and it was counted <clears throat> unto him for righteousness. So I think the Old Testament faith was in that the God of the Old Testament was who he said he was. Yeah. You know? Um, works can't ever save us. So I never, I don't ever believe in a mixing you had to do works and, and plus have faith. I mean, our works are filthy rags. So, but it wasn't faith in Jesus Christ, obviously, because Jesus Christ didn't exist at the time. You know, so it's a faith in what the God of the Old Testament promised. He promised them a Messiah. So, it's a, so you read like you know Hebrews 11, um, the Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith, and you read Romans 4. You know, you see that Paul is specifically stating that works didn't save Moses or any of those guys. It was faith, and they acted on that faith. So, faith, you know, proven by action. Yeah. Um, okay, so I guess my next question, I don't know, I, we're at 57, almost 58 minutes now. Uh, I could keep going if you want to keep going a little bit, but I, I think if we're going to wrap it up in, into one final thought here, and, and we've, we've talked a little bit about the text that the, that the Bible, that the King James has come from versus what other versions have come from and the differences between those and why that's important and where you can kind of trace them throughout history. Uh, but, but if you were to sum it up and, and just kind of give a concluding remark about um, why this is something that should concern, uh, why this is something that should concern people today, what would you say is the biggest thing if you were going to convince somebody that they need to examine this if they've never thought about it? What would you leave them with? Um, I would just, I'd run through some some of the doctrinal changes. You know, I would show how, you know, one of the one one of the ones that. Uh, irritates me the most, I think, is Mark. It's Mark ten twenty four, where it says it's difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven in the King James, but it says it's difficult to get into the kingdom of heaven in the New Versions. So not only does that take out the warning to the rich, but then it makes it look like it's hard to go to heaven when Jesus says, "My yoke is easy and my burden is light." So just that's that's a huge change. And you know, Jesus being a liar, Paul castrating his enemies, the blood taken out, repentance taken out. I would say these, all the stuff taken out, everything taken out is good. And everything added in is capital. So you got to figure out who did this and why. Um, and it's, it's worth looking at the two streams. 
So I really try to hit some hardcore doctrine for, to people and then say, if this is gone, somebody changed it, and it's not good. So you've got to, well, you know, this is the, the voice of God to the people of the, of the world. So you've got to figure out if the Bible you're reading is the voice of God or is it an edited voice of God with tears sewn in it. You know, it's, it's no small matter. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the, another problem with that is so many people, they love their pastors and their sermons that the Word of God doesn't mean a lot to them, except for in the context of John MacArthur or whoever their guru is. So, you know, there's so many sort of layers you have to peel through to get people to even, to even really care. And then they, they've heard, they've been brainwashed into thinking, well, Sinaiticus is, uh, is really the, the proper source for all, you know, Bible versions these days, all the new, new Testament Bible versions, and that there's no real doctrine changed. So you got to hit the doctrines hard, like the big ones, so people can actually see, you know, us who are being saved versus us who are saved. You know, the deity, I deal with Jehovah's Witnesses all the time. And there's a bunch of critical references to Jesus being God. There's a great one in uh, Revelation 1.6. Where it says to God and his father. But in the new version it says he and his father. So I need as many of those as I can get to be able to show the Jehovah's Witnesses you know, that Jesus actually is God and the Bible confirms it multiple times. So, you know, it's just there's so much good stuff taken out and there's nothing, I don't think there's anything bad taken out in the new, you know, of the new version. It's all good, good document. And why would somebody do yeah. that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I'll leave with this thought, <clears throat> and then we can wrap it up. I think that if, if I were to try to persuade someone, and I and I and I think that uh, it's a very sensitive subject today when we're when we bring up the differences in Bible versions. I think that we've got to use discretion and discernment when we're, when we have these conversations. But um, it, in in this uh, on making the hedge, I think this is a, a really good avenue to open the dialogue, to open the discussion, uh, for people to you know to be able to. Uh, talk about these things like you and I, and but in in regard to that subject, I would say um, that that understanding that there are actually doctrinal differences, there are actually doctrinal changes, and when it comes to the authority of the Word of God in our life and in our salvation, um, I think we've got to consider whether or not we we do in fact have a a Bible that is trustworthy. And I look at John 5.39, and John 5.39 says, Ye search the scriptures, for ye think in them ye have life eternal, and they it is which bear witness concerning me. Uh, and ye would not come to me that ye might have life. I think it says a lot in there about the gospel itself, uh, that you look to the word of God to see uh, how you can have eternal life, they witness of Jesus Christ, and at the end of the day, you have a choice on whether or not you accept Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, because in verse 40 says, you will not come to me that you might have life. But uh, when it comes to, when it comes to um, the importance of scriptures, we've got to look at that the same as we look at Jesus Christ. You've got the written word, you have the incarnate word, and you've got the doctrine of preservation. So if I were to look at the scriptures as the written word, and I were to look at Jesus Christ as the incarnate word, I would say the two are inseparable. They, right. it, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And right. God chose to use that to give us exactly what he wants us to have in a Bible, whether it's an English version, whether it's an Italian version, whether it's a Gothic or Egyptian or wherever the Bible version is at, but it's traceable throughout history because God has promised us he would preserve it. And I believe that he's done that. 
And if you are really genuinely concerned about whether you can trust the Bible that you've got, this is something to consider, something to think about, something to examine. Are there, in fact, changes in doctrine and something that you can bet your soul on? I would say that you can bet your soul on the Word of God, that it is trustworthy enough that God has given you exactly what you need to believe that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And uh, so I, I would kind of wrap it up with that, but um, I'll give you the last word, Ed. I've got to say, this has yeah. been great, man. It's been fun. So. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, I would say, too, um, I feel like on that short little article I wrote on my blog, like, I'm just a like, dude. You know, I'm not, I'm not a genius. I'm not a scholar. But I feel like that article where I kind of, everything we talked about tonight, I kind of laid out in an easily understandable form with links so you can actually see uh, the edits that I made. And I think it's a, it's a good resource. I mean, I go back to it and read it sometimes too, just to remind myself. Okay, because we didn't really talk about West Scott Moore. That's in right. there. The people who really did all this, you know, and how just bad wicked they were. They didn't believe anything sound talking at all. Um, so it is a critical issue, and you know God promises to preserve His word forever, and He tells us that that word is more is as certain as Him speaking out of a cloud of the transfiguration. So those are kind of thoughts to remember how how good that that scripture we have is, how important it is, and how true it is, and how it's, it is the voice of God to us. It is the certain voice of God to us, the only certain voice. Absolutely, man. So guys, if you're listening right now, uh, check it out. I've got it pulled up on the screen followingjesuschrist3.com. You can also find Ed online at, at solascriptura99. Uh, I'm sure that he'll be open to conversation if you have any questions or you, wanna, you want to uh, uh, talk to him about anything that we've said tonight. Or if you have something that you would like to bring up regarding Bible translation and uh, you have a question about that, I'm sure that he's willing to uh, give you any answers that he can to provide the answer to the question you've got. So the article that I think that you're referring to that you wrote, it was, uh, is it the Bible version controversy, a brief history of the war over God's eternal written word? Correct. Yeah, and then another one is the one on repentance. It just shows, I have a friend who, you know, Romans 1 is at least out the last part of uh, Romans 8, 1. And so another article I think is really helpful to show why it matters. And that's the link to that article. It's called Repentance, Salvation, the Bible Version issue. Yes, it really does matter. So that's the second short one to show that in practically it makes a difference. It made a difference in a friend of mine's life for the worse. So absolutely, a good, you know, good sort of simple. It's very simple. It's not super scholarly, but it's a good little easy resource. All right, well, go check it out, guys. I really appreciate you uh, you all who are tuning in live with us. It's been good. And uh, Ed, thanks again, man. It's been a lot of fun. Maybe we can do something like this in the future. And uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. I'm going to go to my closing scene, and uh, we'll go from there. So thanks again, everybody. This is Making the Hedge. Uh, You've just heard an episode on the inspiration and preservation, why that is important and how it uh, relates to the Bible version controversy that we have today. And uh, if it's not something that you've considered in the past, I would definitely look into it. Uh, it's, 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 worth, uh, it's, wor- it's worth looking into just for the simple fact that you're betting your soul on what's written in that Bible. Uh, so we'll wrap it up from there. God bless you all. Please like and share our videos. If you think it's something that's profitable, If you don't, give me a thumbs down. That's fine, too. So, have a good one.